It's the 11th all-time grossing movie in America, grossing worldwide $611 million. Mel Gibson spent $50 million of his own dollars to create a movie that would stir up Hollywood like never before. In fact, Mel Gibson became kind of the priest of Hollywood until his own fall recently, if you watch the news closely, at least in the past couple of years. And then, of course, he became the headline of the fallen priest of Hollywood and how they just blasted him. And he became kind of his, he has developed his own kind of reputation now for creating this movie against Hollywood's standards and directions to such portray Christ. He made a great statement whenever he was making the movie. He said, this movie is about love, hope, and faith, and forgiveness. He, Jesus, died for all mankind, suffered uh, for all of us. It's a time to get back to that basic message. The world has gone nuts. I don't know about your world. Mine has. We, would all use, we, we could all use a little love, faith, hope, and forgiveness. It was me that put Him on the cross. It was my sins that put Him there. When you watch the movie, uh, he's not in the movie, he's not the star of the movie, but actually Mel Gibson does show up in the film. Maybe you know the story and the reality of it is is that his hands are in the movie. Now, I've never heard of a hand actor, but his hands were in the movie and they were acting in the movie. They were the hands that held down Jesus and drove the nail into Jesus' hand in the movie. His rationale was that, what we just read about, is that he believes, as I believe, as what the Scripture points to, it wasn't the, the mean Jews or the evil Pharisees or Sadducees. It was actually you and me. It was actually Mel Gibson. It was actually Mike McDaniel that put Christ on the cross. If you're first time with us today or you're visiting from out of town, we're kind of finishing up a movie series, Messages in the Movie. And, of course, you can't come around Easter and not think about the passion of the Christ. The last movie in this series before we move on, but it's one of those that I think we just kind of have to stop and look at. Last night as a family, we sat and watched it together again. One of those movies that just makes you lose your appetite. It's so gripping. In fact, I can remember going to it at the theater and, and having my popcorn and my Coke stationed in the right location and all right there to dig into. But whenever the movie started, my appetite was gone. Schindler's List is the only other movie that I think I've ever lost an appetite. That says a lot for me. All right? The passion of the Christ is one of those when you look at it and you study it, it disturbs you. Because this is the problem with Easter. Easter has become so commercialized and we've got the eggs and we've got the pastels and we've got all the pretty things about Easter and the blooming flowers. And that's all wonderful and good and it has its place. But really, when we think about the, resur- when we think about the cross, we must first of all think about death. Can you really come to Easter? And not face it in reality, what it, what it really is. Jesus was more than just a good prophet. He was love. And He demonstrated it. He modeled it. He lived it to the point of death. He was not love talked about. He was love demonstrated. In John chapter 15, verse 13, it says, 
Greater love has no one, Jesus is speaking, greater love has no one than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. He demonstrated, he acted out his love. In John 10, 11, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. There's no clearer picture of love than when you look at the life of Christ. There's no greater verse in all of Scripture that summarizes, puts it all in a succinct passage package for us than going to the book of John chapter 3 verse 16. Many of y'all won't even have to go there. It's very simple. It's very familiar. In fact, I want you to say it with me. Uh, it, it has everything tied up in it about, about the gospel and about truth. And the gospel means good news. It's, one, it's a Christian term, a religious term. It means good news. So he's giving us good news. This says it all right there. I want you to say it with me. If you don't know it, it's there on the screen. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Of course, I use the whosoever because I memorized it in the King James. But here it is, right there for us. It spells it all out. The Gospel is tied up right there in that passage of Scripture. In fact, if you pick out different words in there, you can even see the word Gospel in there. If you take the word God and just begin to make an acrostic, God's only Son perished eternal life. This is a very powerful verse that kind of ties everything, summarizes it all, packages it all right there together. Go ahead and throw it all down there, guys. Uh, God's only Son perished eternal life. You can see it all tied up there. 25 words in this verse in total. When you look at that and you, and you kind of break it apart, it even has even more, uh, again, this is not, this is an English translation. It was, it was written in the Greek. But there's some interesting things as you break this verse apart, these 25 words. The first uh, part, the very center of this, uh, of this verse is the word son, okay? The word son. And son is speaking here of Jesus Christ, God's only unique begotten son of God, Okay? But then also, God, there's a slide for that. If you can go, go to the next, next slide. You see God at the center of the verse, okay? At the very center. But if you go, if you look at the first part of the verse, there's the word God. God's at the, kind of the, the, the center of the whole thing. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. God is the first part of this verse. Son is in the middle of the verse. But who's the second part of the verse? It's talking about mankind. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. This verse, in in picture and in words, tells us everything because at the very center of it all is the cross. Because man is on one side, God is on the other side, and the only way that we are going to be bridged together is through a relationship with with a crucified Christ. That's why we need to come back, I think, and revisit the crucifixion from time to time. It is what we, our, our lives are built upon. But he makes a promise in this verse. He said, whoever believes will have eternal life. He makes that promise to us. Now what does it mean? How is it that I can take this one verse, package it up, keep it... If you're going to memorize one verse of Scripture, this is the verse to memorize. If you're going to do that, and you're going to package this up, how can I present this? How can I understand it and really understand everything that there is in the New Testament tied around this? Now, there's a whole lot in the New Testament, a whole lot in all of the Scriptures, but this, again, verse summarizes it all up. I want to give you three essentials that this verse brings out to us that you cannot miss as you go out of here today. And probably this is the first time I have ever shared from John 3.16 in total. I think it seems too simple. 
I mean, this is the verse that you see in the end zone in football games. What does that have to do with football? I still can't figure that one out. But, I mean, you see it in the end zone. You'll see big, fat, overweight guys that should be on the football field with it written across their chest. You know, uh, they should be out there exercising. And they're out there with John 3.16 lined up in a row. What is it about this verse that makes it so powerful, so meaningful, that somebody would tattoo it on their body, that it's probably the first verse that most kids in Sunday school class will memorize? What is it about this verse but that it says so much in one verse? Three essentials that you need to take home with you. One is that you need to acknowledge God's passion. Understanding God's passion is at the very heart of this movie. Understanding God's passion is at the very heart of the, of the entire Bible. And when I say passion, I'm not just talking about a zeal or an excitement. I'm talking about that passionate kind of love. A lot of people think God is mad at them. But I want to say that God's not mad at you. God is madly in love with you. He is absolutely so mad, so passionate about His love that He would send His one and only Son, His very unique Son, and He would send Him to die for us on the cross. We've got to understand and we've got to appreciate and acknowledge His, His great passion for us. I mean, at the very heart of who God is, God is love. The Bible tells us that in 1 John chapter 4, verse 8. You'll hear people talk all the time about how God is love, so God can't send anybody to hell, or God is love, so why would He allow you know, Katrina to happen? Or God is love, and that's an energy out there. So God is just all about love. And at the very essence of who He is, yes, He is love. And we're not going to try to answer all those other life questions today. We'll save that for another day. But I think we do need to walk out of here understanding the very passion, acknowledging the very passion of who He is, and He is at His very core, He is love. First John chapter 4, verse 8 also says, God showed His love. I like that statement because love talked about means nothing. Love demonstrated means everything. God showed His love among us. He sent His one and only Son into the world that we might live through Him. He, he came, He loved, He showed His love so that as He came, we could actually live a better, more fulfilled life through Him. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. The Father has loved us so much that, he is called, that we are called children of God and that we really are His children. See, love is at the very core of it all. And you, you, you and I today, have, we must step into this acknowledging God's love. For God so loved the world. Now that is amazing in itself whenever I think of some of the people in this world. Now you can think of the Taliban and you can think of the, the terrorists around the world. And you can say, but sometimes I think about my family. Can God love all of them? Because I have a hard time loving them. And I'm blood with them. But God has an amazing grace about Him that enables Him to love because that's the very core of who He is. The very essence of who He is. Acknowledging His love is vitally important. Paul prayed this. Listen to this. It's a great verse to just kind of focus in on for a moment. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 18. This was his prayer for the church at Ephesus. He says, To grasp how wide, how long, how high, how deep is the love of God, the love of Christ. How long, how wide, how deep, how, how the love of Christ. When I think about how wide it is, 
God's love is wide enough to encircle and encompass everybody in this room from that corner to that corner to that corner to that corner. His love is wide enough to love us all at the same time. His love is wide enough to cover all of Northwest Arkansas. His love is wide enough to cover all the world. How wide is His love? It's wide enough to embrace us all. How long is His love? I mean, he wants us to understand the, the multi-dimension of God's love. If you think about your life as, as, as a line, as a continuum, and how your life had a beginning and one day your life will have an ending. And I can say this, that throughout your life you're living in the present, but you've lived in the past and you will have a future. I don't know how long your future will be. I don't know how good your future will be. I don't even know how bad your past has been. But the great thing about the, the length of God's love is from the beginning to the end, God will love you. If you don't acknowledge God's love today, God's passionate love for you today, then guys and gals, you're really not going to walk out of here really appreciating what Easter and resurrection and all this is all about. It's just going to be another holiday to attend church. God loves us past, present, and future. How high is God's love? I mean, He tells us there, He wants us to understand the height of His love. When I think about the height of His love, I can think about how much Lori loves me and how much my mother loves me and my family members and my children love me. And you know what? God's love is so much higher than that love. I cannot even climb to the, to the height of God's love for me. It's, it's beyond Mount Everest, His love for us. When I think about the depth of His love, He says, I want them to grasp the wide, how wide, how long, how high, how deep is God's love. You know what? God's love goes so deep into our life. It goes so deep into the core of who we are. It goes so deep into the mire of our life. It goes so deep into us that it reaches us at the very core. The love of Christ reaches us at the very core and can transform us. I'm afraid many of us wake up and live in a world where we have not seen love like this modeled. I mean, I, I can say this. I don't model love like that, but I want to. And I can't say that I can fully love my, my children or my wife until I really understand the love of Christ. As I begin to understand it, then I can begin to give love like I've received love. I don't know how, what kind of life you grew up and what kind of life you're living right now, but maybe you haven't experienced love, unconditional. Love with such depth and such height and such width and such depth. I don't know. Maybe you haven't received that kind of love. My prayer for you would be that you would understand how wide, how long, how high, how deep is the love of Christ today. No role models in your life for love, unconditional. Think about some <clears throat> professionals who got with some four to eight-year-olds. And they asked them, what is love? And, and this is just, a, again, a, a small picture. Because I don't believe I can fully love you completely the way Christ loved you until I have experienced that love. Okay? Now hang with me on this. I think I can make a picture out of this. These children were asked, what is love? Define love for us. What is love like? And I read through a whole list of them, and I think I picked out the best. But this is what some, some elementary kids said about love. Carl, age five, said this. Love is when a girl puts on perfume and a boy puts on shaving cologne and they go out and they smell each other. <clears throat> Chrissy, age six, said, Love is when you go out to eat and you give somebody most of your French fries without making them give you any of theirs. 
That's what Chrissy's perception of love. Terry, age four, love is what makes you smile when you're tired. I thought that was pretty good. Aw. Alright. Elaine, age five, said it like this. Love is when mommy gives daddy the best piece of chicken. <laughs> Emily, age eight, says love is when you kiss all the time. Then when you get tired of kissing, you still want to be together and you talk more. My mommy and daddy are like that. They look gross when they kiss. <laughs> Nakia, age six, says, if you want to learn to love better, you should start with a friend who you hate. That's pretty good advice. Noel, age seven, says, love is when you uh, tell the guy, excuse me, Love is when you tell a guy you like his shirt and he wears it every day. <laughs> Lauren, age four, says, I know my older sister loves me because she gives me all her old clothes and has to go out and buy new ones. <laughs> Mark, at age six, said, Love is, my, is when my mommy sees daddy on the toilet and she doesn't think it's gross. <laughs> Claire, at age six, my mommy loves me more than anybody. You don't see anyone else kissing me goodnight. That's off. That's sweet. All right, Chris at age seven, the last one. Love is when mommy sees daddy smelly, sweaty, and still says he's handsomer than Robert Redford. You know, as you think about a child, that's all the child knows. That little cup of love is all they know. And some people grow up and they never experience any more than a cup, maybe a thimble, of love. And so they can never understand the width, the height, the depth, the length of God's love until you experience it. You might imagine it like this, somebody asking Jesus how much you love me, a child asking Jesus in their concrete thinking how much you love me, and Jesus said, I love you this much. And then he died. That's the love of Christ. And until we can understand the love that God has for us and how He expressed it through Christ, I don't think we can really walk out of here and be anticipating with great excitement what heaven will be like because it's all going to be about Him. It's going to be an awesome thing. To, but we've got to first acknowledge His love. Secondly, we need to appreciate God's presence. We acknowledge His love, or we acknowledge His passion because for God so loved the world that He gave also, we appreciate His presence. He gave. He gave his, his one and only Son, His only begotten Son, His very unique Son. From Romans chapter 3, verse 24, out of the message, it says it like this. Out of sheer generosity, He put us in the right standing with Himself. A pure gift. A pure gift. He got us out of the mess we're in and restored us to where He always wanted us to be. And He did it by means of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Sweetest name I know, we used to sing. What a, what a beautiful gift that we have. And we need, to, we need to understand this gift. We need, to, we need to appreciate the value of this gift. Because the question comes up at Easter time or on Good Friday, why did Jesus have to die? Why did Jesus have to die? And there's a couple of reasons you can jot them down. I don't know if they'll... Space in your nose. Just jot them down the side. The Bible says nobody's perfect. Okay? God's perfect. I'm not perfect. There's going to have to be some kind of give and take here. There's going to have to be some kind of connection. 
God's perfect, I'm imperfect. For all have sinned, the Bible says. So now there's an issue here. There's a barrier. There's a separation. I'm imperfect. God is perfect. The second reason is that somebody has to pay the bill. All right? You can just kind of look at it like this. I've racked up a bill. I've racked up a charge account. I've racked up something that I cannot pay myself. I owe a debt I could not pay, and Jesus paid a debt He did not owe, as, as the chorus used to, uh, used to go. Romans chapter 3, verse 23 says, The wages of sin is death. But as we read last week, if you were here, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin, so that we could be made right with God through Christ. Do you appreciate His presence? Do you acknowledge His passion? And number three, I want us to accept His proposal. For God so loved, that's His passion. The world that He gave, that's His gift, His presence that He has given us. Are you going to receive it today? He died for you so that you could live for Him. What an amazing gift. What an amazing exchange. But the last thing is you've got to accept His proposal. That whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. You've got to accept it. It's a gift that He's extending out to us today, but am I willing to accept it? John chapter 1, verse 12 says it like this. To all who believed Him, believed Him being referring to Jesus, and accepted Him, He gave the right to become children of God. Whose child are you? If you're a child of God, it's because you've believed in Him and you've accepted Him. Not because you went to a certain church, not because a Baptist or a Methodist or whatever denomination baptized you, not because you've taken communion, not because you've gone through some confession. It has nothing. I mean, those are all side events that happen as a secondary of you believing in Him and you accepting Him. To as many as believed Him, and accepted Him, to them gave He the right to become the children of God. Are you a child of God today? I don't want to oversimplify it. I was with somebody just this week. And I was explaining this very thing to them. They said, but it sounds so simple. You know why it's so simple? is because you don't have to jump through 10,000 hoops and give 10,000 whatevers and do whatever bowing or kneeling or whatever or be dunked and sprayed in every river, pond, and lake until the fish know you by your first name. You don't have to do that. Because it's what Jesus did. It's not what I do, it's what He's done. Am I willing to accept that? Am I willing to accept Him for who He is and to become what He wants me to become? Believing in Him is so important because it's more than just acknowledgement of Him, a cognitive awareness of, of Jesus. There's a lot of people that cognitively aware, uh, are aware of Jesus. There's more historical facts about Jesus than there is about much of Roman history that we believe out there. We have more sources on Christianity than we do on, on Roman history and the Greeks. Now here's the question. If believing the cognitive is not enough, what does it mean to believe? Because he referred to that there. To believe in Him means to actually lend your life, give your life, trust in Him. Giving yourself to Him. Believing in Him enough that when you stand up, you're standing on with His might and you're living with Him and you're believing that He's going to be the one who's going to get you into an eternal relationship with God. See, the problem is, is that if it's just believing in the facts about Jesus, that's not enough. 
James chapter 1, James chapter 2 verse 19 says, you believe in God, God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. I don't think there's a person in this room today that believes the demons or Satan is going to go to heaven. But they believe. So believing is not enough. Just having a cognitive awareness of Him is not enough. There has to be a yielding of your life over to Him. The second thing he says, accept Him for who He is. God, Jesus is God. Jesus is God. Jesus is Lord. Accept that. Jesus is your friend. Accept Him as your friend. Jesus is your, is your Savior. Accept Him as your Savior. Jesus is your shepherd. That's who He is. Accept Him for who He is. Believe in who He is. You begin to enter into a relationship with Him. Into a relationship with God. I don't know if you're in, here today and you just, in your life, you say, I, I, I come to church, you know, I hear this message. So what? What do I need to do next? You can be as simple as right where you're at right now, just saying, Jesus, I give my life to you. You are more than a moral example. You are more than a, a, an ethical standard of which to live my life by. You are more than a, than a servant leader in which I need to be. You're, you're more than creating positive energy out there. You are God, and I accept you as my God, my Lord, my Savior, my friend. Just voice it in your own prayer to Him. John chapter 10, verse 28 says, I give eternal life to them. Jesus was speaking. They will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. When you enter into a relationship with God, here's the great thing. You can do nothing to earn it. You can do nothing to lose it. There's nothing I can do in this day to make God love me any more. And there's nothing I can do in my life to make Him love me any less. That is a beautiful truth. There's nothing in this world I can do to make Him love me any more. There's nothing I can do in, the, in this world to make Him love me any less. It's a matter of me believing and accepting. Let me illustrate it like this. I have in my hand one of the, the new $5 bills. All right? I mean, it is technologically advanced with, with, uh, with counterproof ways that will be broken in a month, but right now you can't counterproof. Uh, counterfeit this baby, all right? I have this, and I, I want to give it to somebody. Who wants $5 today? First one up here. Anybody up here? Nobody wants to come up here? Come on, Timmy. Huh? Huh? Come on. All right, Will, you're the first one up here, brother. Come on up here. Sad thing is, this won't even buy you two gallons of gas, but there you go, buddy. All right? What did you do for that? You came and got it. Did you wash my car? No, you did nothing. All right, you have a seat. Give him a hand. He's a brave soul. Now, I'm not going to ask for that $5 back, okay? But the great thing about that is that that's his. What did he do to get it? Did he do anything for it? Did he, did he, did he, he looked good, but he didn't look good for it. All right? He wasn't that good looking. But and he... And, 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 he got it because I offered it, and, and he took it. I have a $100 bill, all right? Does anybody want this? No, forget it. I'm keeping this one. 
I'm keeping that one. I'm cheap. Remember this. Jesus came. He lived. He loved. He died. He rose again. He did everything between heaven and hell to show His love, to give His love, to demonstrate His love to you and to me. That's just the beginning of it. And He is standing here, and metaphorically, He is here today, and He is saying, here you go, to anybody who will receive me and who will believe in me and who will accept me, I will make you my child. But if you don't, come up. It was funny when I said, is anybody going to come up here? I, and nobody wanted to come up here because you didn't know what I was going to have you sing a solo or what. <laughs> but then there was somebody who said, I want that and I'll go get it. And for some of us, it is a matter of walking down an aisle. It's so intimidating. For some of us, it's a matter of saying, I'm going to follow Jesus. That is so overwhelming. Let me just say, Jesus is saying, here it is. Here it is. Does anybody want it? I'm offering. I've died. I've paid for it all. Here, it's t- take it. Will we take it? Or will we reject it? First Peter chapter 1, 3 and 5. This is the Living Bible. Paraphrase version. It says, We are members of God's own family. And God has reserved for His children a priceless gift of eternal life. It is kept in heaven for you. And God will make sure that you get there safely to receive because you are Trusting Him. Are you trusting Him? We're going to do something today that we do from time to time. We're going to dedicate the majority of the rest of the service really over to observing the Lord's Supper and thinking through Christ's great passion, His love, His sacrifice. There's a lot of people in here, and I'll just tell you some things. There are tables in that corner, the table in that corner, and there's two tables up here. You can go anywhere. You might find the closest, most unobstructed table is one in the back, so feel free to go there. But during this time, we're going to have an extended time where it's just going to be music playing. And Tim, in fact, why don't you go ahead and come on up. And as the music plays, any time during this period of music playing, you as an individual, you as a couple, you as a family, feel free to go to any one of these stations. And I would encourage you to take the cup, take the bread, and then take a small cup. And then you maybe just step over to the side, away and out of the way. And then just maybe pray. Say your own prayer, and then just take the bread, and then take the cup. And just reflect on the great passionate and awesome gift of Jesus. You go back to your seat and be seated and worship and sing and, and just imagine for a moment Christ's great love and sacrifice for us. Let's pray. Father, you're awesome. We thank you for the time to reflect, to remember. Lord, touch us. Lord, don't let us be the same. Help us to understand your love. Help us to live in your love. In Jesus' name we pray.